I'm not going to use a pulpit today. I need to swing my arms around and maybe I won't get as hot if I don't have a pulpit in front of me. The real reason is I forgot my iPad. It's still at uh, work. So I'm going to have to use my little phone. We'll see how that goes. Hopefully it'll work all right. Oh, good morning, Willow Byrne, and uh, welcome. Oh, this just feels good. I feel more like Tim, Ant- what's his name? Anthony Robbins now. Can really get up close and move around. Awesome. Yeah, I can too. Oh, there's no fan out the front. Well, I've been sucking back some uh, ice latte with ice cubes to try and prevent the park cook down. So bear with me if I start sweating everywhere. Try not to be distracted. <laughs> it is a hard thing to ignore, I know, but... Kerry's given me a nicely ironed black shirt because she figures it'll hide the sweat. <laughs> so, um, might want to open up to Revelation 7. We're continuing in our Revelation series. We're starting to really get into the meat of Revelation, which is probably a good time to make sure that that five-point harness I talked about is actually nice and secure. Uh, make sure that it's buckled in tight, especially at the hips, so you don't do the submarine slip thing out once we have a hard impact. That's a little bit of a crash metaphor there. Hopefully there won't be a crash. The question I want to ask today is, who can stand? Another way of asking this question is, who can endure? Who can persevere? Who can stand acceptably before God with all the judgments and the wrath of God that's coming in Revelation? Who can stand? And you might ask, well, stand against what? Endure what? Survive what? Overcome in what? If you're at Revelation 7, you'll notice that there's a what I call an unfortunate chapter break because oftentimes you have these chapter breaks, which we kind of need, I guess, so we can easily reference things and coordinate where people are reading. But oftentimes it actually breaks up the flow of the passage. And the flow of the passage is continuity from Rudgy's sermon last, or a couple of weeks ago on the sixth seal. So when the sixth seal is broken open and all those judgments begin, we are still in the sixth seal. And this is very much still that pattern that I talked about a few months or a few weeks ago of judgment and redemption, uh, wrath and grace all going together. And so I just wanted to read this, which is Revelation 6, 16 to uh, 17, just to give the continuity and context into what I'm going to talk about in terms of who can stand. So verse 16 of chapter 6 says, They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So when we ask the question, who can stand? When the Bible asks the question, it's actually asking it of you. And it's asking it of those early churches. And then as we get further into Revelation, it's being answered. It's being answered. But I just wanted to focus for a moment just on what it means when God, in his red-hot judicial judging actions on earth, says to us, who can stand? Because it's God, it's the Lord Jesus who's saying that. Who can stand? I just want to think about wrath for a minute, because it's not a word that you hear very often. In fact, if you hear it, it tends to probably make you cringe a little bit and turn off a little bit. Um, And I guess we maybe see it as something harsh, and it is. It's undeniably harsh. But the real question we have to ask is, is it unfair? And what I want you to see here is this isn't just the wrath of a dictatorial, super powerful being in heaven. This is the wrath of the lamb. Now think about that for a moment. Have you ever seen a lamb just like kind of get his biffo on and just like... like it's, it's, a, like it's, a, it's a silly thing in modern day society to think of the wrath of the lamb, isn't it? And yet the Bible just doesn't seem to care about what people think at all. And neither do the writers. 
And that's a good thing because sometimes we worry too much about what people think. And as a result, things don't change. Bad things continue to happen. Bad behaviours continue to happen. But I'm glad the Bible kind of just tells us how it is. And so it uses this wrath word over and over. And if we just think about it for a moment, um, I've got out my little handy Greek concordance because, as you know, the Bible's not written in English. Well, our version is. It was originally written in Greek. And so that word anger, um, Aristotle actually has a really good insight into what that Greek word means. And he tells us that it is anger and desire with grief. Anger and desire with grief. So when we apply it to God, it's kind of like this kind of utter abhorrence, uh, being appalled at sin and yet being incredibly grieved at what it's doing to people, what it's doing to his creation. And so it's not just a out of control anger. It's a very tightly constrained, controlled anger, but with grief. And I, I guess the best metaphor I can give to you is that as parents, you imagine a son who's just beating up on his sisters all the time. He's doing terrible things to his sisters over and over again. And you're speaking to your son. You're counselling your son. You're doing the best that you can for your son. But he continues in his way. Eventually, your wrath, which is the desire for him to be well and to be good and so forth, and also all his sisters to be good and to be well, is just overflowing. And it's just a kind of grieving thing. It's like, I've got to make this right. He won't listen. I've got to call the police. I've got to do something. You know, judgment has to come. And on a mega scale, that's what's happening in Revelation. God has finally had enough. He's finally had enough. But even as that comes, he's still offering uh, grace, which we'll see. So when we ask, can they stand or can you stand or can we stand? Um, It's against the wrath of the Lamb and of God. So the other thing about this is when we talk about the wrath of the Lamb, it is clearly a metaphor for the slain Lord Jesus. He has, we're told in John at the start of John, he is the Lamb of God. So this ratchets up that grieving part, that wrath part, if you think about it, because it's not, again, just a kind of, I don't know, unmovable, untouchable super being in space. It's someone who's come and died, someone who's died on the cross. It's the slain Lamb. No wonder his kind of wrath is ratcheted up because he's done so much, and yet the world continues to ignore it in general. So when it comes back to um, our question of who can stand and we think about wrath against the wrath of God or in the wrath of God, I love what the IVP commentary says. And it says this, all of us who venture to interpret the book of Revelation, and I'd also say understand it and do it, stand poised between the joyful promise of Revelation 1 verse 3 and the terrible warnings of Revelation 22, 18 and 19. And you're going to say, well, what are they? Well, remember Revelation 1.3, our memory verse. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. And so what this uh, author is saying is that we're poised there. We're poised right now, listening, ready to be blessed. But at the end of that, there's a warning which says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from the book of this prophecy, God will take away from his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So you think about that for a moment. This is a heavy book. This, is, this book is so heavy that if you add to it or take away from it, think of those curses and those blessings. That's what's at, at, at stake. Okay? And we often go, oh, maybe that's just for people like me that preach it or people that do Bible interpretation. It's not. We can easily add to the words when we get distracted or bored. 
We can easily take from the words in a sense of not taking them into our hearts, not keeping them, not doing them. It's aimed at those kinds of people, all of us together, not just Bible teachers, okay? So again, it becomes really important when the Bible asks a question, who can stand? Who can stand? We're told in chapter 7, let's read together. After I saw this, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on on any tree. I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living voice. He called out in a loud voice. It's a really understated way to say that. If you look in the Greek, loud is mega. He called out with a mega voice. I wish we could hear it because then we'd probably really listen. To the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. In heaven, you've got these magnificent beings, all sorts of different types of creatures beyond the species of kind of humanity. There's all types up there or out there, depending on how you see heaven transdimensionally. And in verse 3, it says, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servant of our God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. Seven, uh, sorry, uh, from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Notice he hears that. That's going to become important later. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Sound familiar? That's a song. We're going to sing that later. Verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, what a scene. What a magnificent scene. I could just stop there and then just let us think about it. And that would be enough. But I feel like you've called us to something more this morning. To understand what it is to stand and to be found in your presence, ready to have every tear wiped away. To have you shelter us. We understand scorching heat very well over the last few days and to be out in it in the sun would be a terrible thing so too we need that shelter we need that protection spiritually we need it from you help us lord to move closer to you today in jesus name amen so who can stand again 
This is all part of the sixth seal, okay? And I encourage you to go back and look at some of the sermons from Raji and myself and Ben to continue to get sort of context. So judgment is happening. We had the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now at the start of Revelation 7, we've got four other things. What are they? Four winds. Four winds. And the four winds in the Bible oftentimes are judgment. They are what carry judgment. Later on, we'll see they're carrying, in a sense, you know, meteorites and all this kind of stuff that falls down. But John says, hang on a minute. Oh, sorry, not John. John hears, we want them held back for a while. Just hold them back for something important to happen. It's to put this mark of God on on these 144,000. And so when we say, who can stand? It's really simple. The 144,000 can stand. They are, in terms of being accepted by God, approved by God, they can stand. They can stand before the throne and in front of the Lamb with all the multitudes of angels. They can stand in that holy place. Do you reckon you could? I'm hoping you'll confidently say yes. You will now because I'm leading you that way. I'm, I'm hoping you'll confident, confidently say yes. By the end. And if you haven't, then like Paul says in Corinthians, examine your faith. Examine to see whether you're in the faith. 144,000 can stand. So let's study them a little bit. Who are they? Because if we can understand who they are, maybe we can get on their team. Maybe we can be a part of it. Maybe we can then stand with them. So who are they? Um, and how do I get on their team? Again, are you in the 144,000? Do you think you are? <laughs> yeah. Like, see, whenever I'm asked a question like this, it's easy for me to ask you guys because you're on the spot. I've prepped up for the last few weeks, months even. You know, you're sitting there with not that amount of prep. But a safe way of answering is yes and no. <laughs> of any question. It depends at what level. you look. No, anyway, I'm not going there, but... Um, are you in the 144,000? Can you stand? Um, first of all, I want to say this. What is Revelation doing when it gives us numbers and it gives us metaphors and it gives us pictures? What's it doing? Is it giving us sort of you know, indecipherable or multi-cipherable symbols? Contentious symbols and metaphors. You know, I, don't, I want to say no to that because if that was the case, then how can Revelation 1-3 be true, which is, blessed is the one who hears this word and who keeps this word? How can it be true if you can't keep, if you can't understand it? How can you keep it? How can you understand what, what you don't keep? It's like a big, loud trumpet call that goes out. You hear that, yet yeah, that's time to go. But then someone else goes, no, that's not really a trumpet call, time to go. That's a trumpet call, time to stop. Stay where you are. It has big, big implications, doesn't it? And so what I want to do is just um, basically say and talk a little bit about the 144,000. And I'll just put my cards on the table. It's a metaphor, okay? It's a word picture. And you might go, word pictures, numbers, doesn't work, Adrian. Numbers are hard, cold, scientific facts. It's either 144,000 people or it isn't. Since when do we use numbers as metaphors? Good question. If I say to you, my preaching has taken a million years, are you going to be here in, what is it? 2017 plus a million? Are you? <laughs> no, I'm just saying to you, using a number as a metaphor, as a stand-in, as a word picture, I'm taking a long, long time. What about uh, this one? You don't even have half a percent of half a chance. So, you know, the mathematically minded amongst us go, what is that, by the way? 0.25. <laughs> 
So 0.25, and then you know you build a whole kind of empirical data set on. No, I'm just saying you don't have much of a chance at all. It's a number standing in. Or I might just go, you are number one, Ben. Does he? You don't look like number one, in the sense of like a symbol straight up and down. <laughs> so like numbers are used all the time as word pictures, as stand-ins. And so as we sort of progress through who are the 144,000, um, we can get some clues perhaps from Revelation 14. Okay, so Revelation 14, you might as well just turn there with me, is Revelation 14, the 144,000 reappear, they make a reappearance. And in verse 1 again we see of Revelation 14, I looked, so it's John. Notice uh, John is looking now, what did he do with, sorry, uh, what did he do with the 144,000, did he see them or did he hear about them? Oh, he heard them, yeah, sorry. I thought you couldn't hear me, Nicole. Sorry. I'm going, oh, my mic must have stopped. So notice now, and all the way through Revelation, he hears things and he sees things. And that's an important distinction. It, like, Revelation, you have to understand, is very impressionistic. It's all through the impressions of John. Yes, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's John. And you notice John very rarely gives commentary, very rarely says, I think this is that or whatever. Very rarely. It's very interesting. He's really just trying to faithfully relate what Jesus has given to him. Then I looked in verse 1 of chapter 14, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing water and like a loud peal of thunder. Imagine that. You kind of don't just hear that, you feel it. You know, when there's a big thunder, you feel it in your chest. The sound I heard was like that of harpers playing their harps. These are not cringy harps, these are powerful uh, heavenly harps of a heavenly orchestra. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And Zali, she's got her own song right now. No, no, it's fine. These are those who did not defile themselves with women. So they're probably happily married. Um, Red hot monogamy, they love their wives. For they kept themselves pure. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So now we get a few more clues. One, they're intrinsically, uh, essentially Jewish. Okay? And they're probably either virgins or happily married Jewish boys. They follow the lamb. They don't sleep around. And they are considered to be the first fruit first fruits of those that God has redeemed. But why do you think they're numbered the 144,000? And what I want to say is that if this is a word, that's, this is a number that's standing in and dressed up as a metaphor or dressed up for meaning, then I could even say to you, when you think of 12, what do you think of? What's that? The 12 apostles? What else? The 12 tribes of Israel? Eggs? <laughs> dozen eggs? In the Bible, whenever we see 12, it is intimately and tightly uh, connected to chosenness. Jesus said of the 12 apostles, I chose you, you didn't choose me. The Israelites didn't choose God, he chose them. And so if we're thinking of 144,000, we're thinking of chosenness. It's a number dressed up as a word, and that word is chosenness. These are the elect, again, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, chosen. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, chosen, goes on and on. You've got 12 by 12. These are uh, utterly, purely, wonderfully chosen, elected Israel. 
12 tribes chosen, 12,000 times 12, 144,000. And so as John hears this number, what he's hearing is something very familiar to him. He is hearing the tribes of Israel. He is hearing this pure kind of chosen group of people. And you can actually read, I don't have time today, but you can read a lot more about this in Romans 9, where you find out, for example, in verse 4, that theirs, Israel, is the adoption as sons. There's the divine glory. Now, I'm talking about the elect Israel, not necessarily the national Israel, which you'll see is very clear in this text very shortly. Theirs is the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. I mean, so that, that Israel was to bring out the Lord Jesus Christ. That Israel was chosen to bring out the Lord Jesus Christ, which would be redemption for the whole world. But then Paul says this, it's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. He's saying that because there's sort of this objection that's raised in Romans 9, which is, well, if we're the chosen, why are so many people not behaving like the chosen? Remember Israel's sordid history, immorality, idolatry, just over and over again. And what we're seeing here is that, no, there are a chosen elect. They will will carry that message. They will bring the message of the Lord Jesus, which then turns into 12 apostles. Now, I know that by saying that, we could then go into a lot of depth in Romans 9. Maybe we need to preach Romans 9, which is quite surprising. Who would have thought Revelation would bring you to Romans 9? But there you go. Uh, Maybe we need to preach that. And I will. Romans 9, 10, 11 or something like that. Maybe we'll do that in the future. But for now, just bear with me, okay? I know some of you might disagree with that. Again, I just ask you to get in the Word yourself and think about it. Um, but this 144,000 then, if you think about it, as Paul says, not all who are of Israel are Israel. That is not all of them behave that way. It's not just because it's in their DNA. You know, he talks about the circumcision of the heart. So he talks about that, that kind of spiritual transformation. And what I believe we're seeing here with 144,000 is the pure, distilled, um, wonderfully elect, chosen of God that are doing the right thing, even until the end of the earth. Now, is there genuinely... 144,000? I don't know. There could be. But then again, there might not be. Again, I just ask you to, uh, to think about that. And like I said, the trouble is, is that Israel keeps sinning. And mostly, what are their issues? I just gave it out before. Immorality, sexual immorality, and idolatry. What are these good Jewish boys we're learning about here? What, what, what are they known for? They don't defile themselves with women. And... They follow the lamb. They follow the lamb. Which is what Israel, national Israel, just didn't do, wasn't that good at. But just like kings were told when Elijah's all upset and stuff, am I by myself? And what does God say to him? I've kept 7,000 for myself that haven't what? Bowed the knee to Baal. They haven't got into idolatry. Same thing happens again. Matter of fact, this uh, imagery is very much taken from the Old Testament. Did you know Revelation has more Old Testament allusions and content than any other book of the Bible. Some scholars estimate between two-thirds and three-quarters of Revelation is Old Testament. It's fascinating. And so God says it's okay because even if national Israel fails, the 144,000, the pure, the chosen, the elect, they won't fail because being chosen isn't just of DNA, it's being chosen of God by God's sovereign decision. 
like I said, God always does that. He does it with Elijah. The other thing to, to realize is that there is this sealing process in Ezekiel. And what happens in Ezekiel, and again, I encourage you to get into Ezekiel at some point, there's judgment coming. Guess what God tells Ezekiel? He says, or he shows Ezekiel, there's an angel. An angel comes and seals a whole bunch of people from imminent judgment. And they are the, these are those that haven't what? Again, sexual immorality, idolatry. It's there again. So what you're seeing here is the true Israel of God, chosen, elected, chosen to be a conspicuous community. They're not just chosen so they can kind of, you know, just, I guess, bask in their electedness. They're chosen for a purpose. They're chosen to, to bring God's message, to bring God's word, to bring God's redemptive plan to the earth. They're chosen to show a different way, to live a different way, to actually enflesh the message by having God as first in their lives. And you'll notice that in chapter 5, sorry, verse 5 of chapter 7, we'll go back there if you haven't already, back to Revelation 7, who heads up the tribes of Israel? Do you remember? Judah. What's, what's, what's important about Judah? Yeah, Jesus came from Judah. This list is unlike any other list in the Bible. The tribes of Israel are mentioned many times in the Bible. The only time they're mentioned with Judah at the head is here. And it shows again, what was, remember when we talked about John, he had his head down and he heard about the lion of the tribe of Judah who could actually open up the seals. He had his head and he looked up and there was the lamb, the lion, which is Jesus. So these 144,000 have at their head Jesus from the tribe of Judah. And again, it's these kind of chosen people, these first fruits. You know, we're told all through the Bible that Israel's the first fruits, then the Gentiles. That's what's happening here in graphic imagery they can stand so the question comes again are you in there are you in the 144,000 whether they be a true 144,000 individual units or whether they be this kind of well-rounded symmetrical word metaphor for the chosen well I'll ask you this are you a Jewish man are you from any tribe come on interestingly the tribe of Dan is missing. Did anyone notice that? The tribe of Dan is missing. Interesting, when I searched through, did a quick word search on Dan, I'll just share this with you. Uh, Dan is pegged for, guess what? Idolatry. So many scholars believe that it's missing because of that. And instead, Manasseh, I think, or one of the tribes stands in um, that are Joseph's sons. So it's all over then. You're not part of the 144,000. You're not chosen. I'll just say a word here. That is exactly how some people think sometimes we've chosen us. They think it's just, oh, well, you're either in or you're out. That's not the case here. And I'll show you why. So the sermon isn't over yet because there are some other people that are standing. Have you noticed who they are? You'd want to. They're very, very obvious. The Oculos can stand. I don't know if I said that Greek word rightly, but Oculos just simply is the Greek word for crowds, massive crowds, throngs of people. And something fascinating and extraordinary is about to happen. So I know it's a hot day. So just bear with me. I'm not preaching that long today and we're actually way, way ahead of time. So just bear with me. Back to uh, Revelation 7, verse 9. I want to show you something. After this, I looked. Someone want to... Well, Nicole was going like this before, so with her ear. So I'm thinking, looked. After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude, a great oculos, that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Now, remember... This is still the sixth seal. Some scholars want to say that there's an interlude, but the Bible and Revelation and John and the Holy Spirit never mention the fact that there's an interlude. Oh, come on in. Hello. Can someone go help that lady? Thanks, Sarah. Don't let her get away. <laughs> <laughs> Unless she wants to. I lost my train of thought now. 
So they're standing there, they're wearing white robes, they're holding palm branches in their hands, and it's part of the sixth seal. There's no interlude here. The sixth seal has been opened up, there's judgment, but now there's also this redemptive kind of entity of the 144,000 and also the multitudes. If you go back to Revelation 6, verse 11, they are also dressed in white. So there's sort of that continuity between the fifth, sixth seal and this scene here. Now, though, there's a massively full crowd and they're all together wearing white robes. Again, that kind of, they're wearing the same team colours as the people underneath the altar, the people that were uh, martyred. So who are these multitudes? It's really important, isn't it? Because these ones can stand. These ones can stand. Now, bear with me because this is the cool thing. People are already on the edge of their seat. (laughs) I hope so. Now, just before I go there, though, a question again. There's 12,000 by 12 12 tribes in the 144,000. And we already said, what is another 12? The 12 apostles. So where do the 12 apostles come from? Bit of Bible. Where'd they come from? The tribes. The tribes. So do you think that they, in a sense, are elect as well to bring the message, to bring the message to the world, God's message about the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah, absolutely. We know that those Jewish lads, those 12 apostles, came from the 12 tribes, and so the 12 kind of fits there as well. And then we go, okay, what were they chosen for? Again, were they chosen to be the comfortable elect? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew, does anyone remember the Great Commission? He says to his disciples, Go therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It's also, uh, the 12 apostles are also those that Jesus spoke about in this way. He said, you didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. So the 144,000, what were they called? First fruit. So what are the multitudes? Second fruit, (laughs) more fruit, more people being drawn in because of the 144,000 or the elect of God. And now notice something else, and this is where I want to just show you something special in the text. John sees the four angels holding back the four winds, but he doesn't see the 144,000. Nowhere in the text does it say he sees them. So now let's just put out, or you can close your eyes or put your head down, but if I'm telling you, that then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, and you're about to look to try to see them. What do you expect to see? You expect to see 144,000, don't you? You expect to see these chosen ones. Instead, it says, after this, I looked in verse 9 of chapter 7, and there before me was a great multitude. So he hears about 144,000, but when he looks, he sees the multitude. You might go, oh, that's just semantics. It's actually incredibly important. You know why? Because he sees a transformation. He's actually still seeing the 144,000, but where are they? They've been completely subsumed by the multitudes. 144,000 isn't that many. It's just one and a half MCGs. MCG, I think, can hold about 100,000, can't it? Yeah, well, there's a picture of it. So that's at capacity. So that's, that's 100,000. So add on a half or so, that's 144,000. So you're expecting to see roughly that amount of people. Instead, when he looks spread out before the throne room amongst that incredibly pl- incredible place, he sees multitudes. He sees brothers and sisters from Papua New Guinea, brothers and sisters from Sudan, brothers and sisters from China and Singapore, brothers and sisters from uh, Victoria. I'm from there. Bro- brothers and sisters from all over the world. Russians are there. Indians are there. Oh, they are all there all just kind of mingling about, ready to praise the Lord. And in there is the the 144,000. They've done their job. They've taken the message. This is a snapshot. 
snapshot of what it's going to be like. It's, kind of, it's hard to tell past, present, future in Revelation because it's just kind of flipping around a bit. But here is a, a, a picture. And they wear uh, white, purged by blood red. And then in verse 10 it says, They cry out in a loud voice. They, again, a mega voice. Now, you, you, you've heard the MCG, right? Or you've been in similar capacity crowds, haven't you? Or a concert. When that crowd roars and when they barrack for their team or for their rock star, it's, it's, it's deafening, isn't it? Imagine millions. And then imagine uh, angelic voices that are a part of that. Wow. You imagine that? And they are joined by beings that you and I don't even really know about yet. As it says there, all the angels who are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fall down on their faces before the throne and worship God. Now, we know from Revelation 5 that the angels number thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. What a rock concert for the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, what, what an orchestra. Like, like, it's just incredible. I can't, oh, the words fail me. And it's all because of our Lord God who goes, you know, what? I'm going to make sure the message gets through. Even though I've got dodgy Israel doing this stuff, I'm going to make sure there is an elect, there's a chosen. They're going to, they're going to keep themselves for me. They're going, to, they're going to keep themselves from silly little idols. Their iPhone will not be their best friend. The Lord Jesus Christ will be their best friend. And they're going to make sure that when they live and they enflesh the kingdom, they're going, to, they're going to preach just by what they do. And they're going to preach to all nations, all tribes. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. So I just want to say again, can you stand? Will you be in the multitudes? Will you be there with the 12 apostles, the 144,000, the tens of thousands of angels? To know that, you just probably need to know just a little bit more about the multitudes. So verse 13 says, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? Where do they come from? I answered, that's John answering, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. Notice two distinctive things about them. One, they've made it through the tribulations. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So those multitudes aren't just blood purged, not just bent the knee to the Lord Jesus and now their sins are forgiven. They have also endured to the end. Do you understand? This is, this is why it's so important for you. You know, just, just my brothers and sisters here, it's so important for you to understand. That's where you are now. You, you're here. You are, I believe if you've bent the knee, if, if, you have, if you've asked God this, this dysfunction that's within you, this sin that's within you, if you've asked him to forgive you for it, and you are even now asking him and relying on the Lord Jesus Christ who has saved you and died for you, if you're doing that, then understand this. You need to endure and persevere to the end. Because the multitudes are not just those who believed in Jesus and then just lived their lives as though it did not matter. The multitudes are those that lived and sold themselves out for Jesus. They endured right to the end. And this great tribulation, this great tribulation, you know you're on that trajectory already. There's a trajectory towards great tribulation great trials. It's already happening now. Christians aren't exempt from that. You know, Stephen got persecuted. Paul speaks of persecutions and tribulations, which the Thessalonians endured. They had to receive the word with much tribulation. Paul says, don't be moved by these tribulations. Paul exhorts other converts to be patient in tribulation. 
You're on the tribulation, great tribulation arc right now. You're just down here. You just haven't experienced full persecution like these people have. And again, can you stand? Can you stand? Can you stand when that kind of persecution comes? Because what will happen with great tribulation will be great temptation. Great tribulation will be great temptation. Remember the little quiz we did a while back? The seven little churches. Who's this Revelation 7 being written to? Still those seven churches. Easy to forget about them, but they're still back there. They're still, being, they're still highly prominent in the Lord Jesus' mind, I believe. That's why he's telling them about the 144,000 and the multitudes and the need to persevere. So let me just do a little quiz as we get to the end of the sermon. First love first. Who was that? Which church? The church at Ephesus. Church at Ephesus. He says, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. You know what he's saying there? Don't sell out. Don't sell out because there's something worse coming and don't cave in. Don't sell out. Don't cave in. So don't sell out in a sense of getting into immorality, idolatry. Don't cave in by just going, oh, it's all too hard. I need to stop. Do not be afraid. Be faithful. Who was that said to? Smyrna. Well done. No, I probably got him in order. Uh, don't look back, Luke. Oh, terrible. <laughs> terrible. No, that's all right. I'm obviously prepared. Yeah, he says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. There's a temptation for them to cave in. He says, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. So that's, they're on the ark as well. They're on that great tribulation ark. Don't sell out. Don't cave in. What about this one? Overcoming by repenting of that Balaam spirit. The Balaam spirit, the idolatry spirit. That was Pergamum. And he talks there about... Don't, don't give in to that. Don't sell out to that. And then this one. Hold on. Don't tolerate the Jezebel spirit. Remember that one from a few months ago? Thyatira. And then, again, the Jezebel spirit, what's that? Immorality. Don't sell out to that. Don't cave in. Go through the open door. Who did this one? Was that you, Reggie? Ben. Philadelphia. I know your deeds. I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Don't cave in. Yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Don't sell out. Don't sell out. Don't cave in. Sardis, wake up. Strengthen what remains. Or I'll come to you when you don't expect me. Don't sell out. Don't cave in. And then the last one, Laodicea. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Don't sell out. Don't cave in. Remember them? All wishy-washy, neither good for hot, neither good for cold. Just useless in the middle. And he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear. There's their team colours. Did you know your team colours are white? It's a glorious white. It's very shiny, incandescent, very impressive. Not kind of geeky and awkward like you probably think. It's awesome. Everybody wants it. Everybody. Again, there's those white clothes, the team colours. Don't cave in. Don't give up. The Great Tribulation brings great temptation. And, you know, if we are to do these words, it is, don't cave in, don't sell out, don't sell out. Again, you see the Lord God who has to deal in wrath with things that have just gone so badly wrong, but in it he adds redemption, he offers grace. You're going to see that all the way through Revelation. That's our God. And, you know, we might say, how long? How long do we have to put up with death and suffering? You know, this is really what wrath is about. It is dealing with that. So it's gone once and for all. But we can't, if we're a part of it in any way, if we're in a part of, uh, of that death cycle, that sin cycle because of our own corruption and we haven't bent the knee to the Lord Jesus, 
then we ourselves are subject to wrath. We ourselves need to turn to him. We need to take this seriously, you know, so seriously. Will you stand? Can you stand? Can you stand in that great day? You know, I've got a final challenge before we go to worship. This final challenge I want to bring to you every sermon that I preach in 2017. It's just on my heart. Why did the house on the sand fall flat? It wasn't built on the rock. And why? Why wasn't it built on the rock? What does Jesus say is the difference between the house on the sand and the house on the rock? He says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, both the man on the sand and the man on the rock heard the words. Only one of them put them into practice. And this practice is very simple. It is to stand. Now, if you're feeling burdened by this, I want you to feel burdened, but now I want to point something out to you. You can stand. You can absolutely stand. You can stand. In fact, why don't we stand up now? Would you stand? Let's stand. Let's, let's finish this last bit off with standing. I'm going to ask Gabe to come out as well because we're going to sing a song together. This is one of those songs that comes from the end. Uh, sorry, come from back in the 80s or somewhere. And I know that everyone over the age of 40 is going to sing this loudly. And some of you might feel that just the melody or whatever is a bit cringy. You can overcome that with the vigour of your voice. And just imagine that scene in heaven. Okay, imagine that scene in heaven where angels stand and sing. Majestic, powerful beings. And I just want you to think now of the Lord Jesus Christ who has stood for you. He stood for you before you were even like a twinkle in your parents' eye. He stood for you. He decided along with the Father that he would redeem you, that he would send the chosen to go to the world and proclaim the message. Think of him um, standing on that mountain for you, preaching the way of the kingdom for you, for you. And then living the way of the kingdom, never, never once asking for anything for himself, just simply giving healing for three years. And then imagine him standing before Pilate, beaten up, spat on, trashed. He stood for you. And now, this is what I love, in Revelation 5, 6, John sees a lamb, what? Standing in the center of the front. I don't know how that throne thing works. It's kind of a big thing. But So think of him standing there, the lamb slain for you. Think about that. Just, think, just meditate on that. Try not to look around. Try not to be distracted by that. Let's even just close our eyes momentarily. Just think about the Lord Jesus standing before Pilate. The Lord Jesus standing outside that tomb in resurrection power. The Lord Jesus standing as the lamb and the lion in heaven. Think about that. He stands for you. He loves you.